Hi, and welcome to the Church Unlimited podcast. Church Unlimited is a vibrant Bible-based church in North Lakes, Queensland that is passionate about helping people discover the genuine love of Jesus. If you're currently looking for a new home church, we'd love for you to join us for Sunday worship from 4pm at North Lakes State College on the corner of Discovery Drive and Joiner Circuit. We hope you enjoy this great message from our Sunday service and come for a visit someday soon. Well, last week I started our new teaching series called Christ Follower. Christ Follower. Jesus says to His first disciples, before they were ever His disciples, He says to them, come follow me and I will make you a fisher of men. Come follow me and I will make you. And if there is one thing that I've learned about this life, the key to making it is becoming a Christ follower. I think that there are a lot of people that go to church out of ritual or out of routine or out of habit. There are other people that go to church because they're trying to somehow please God. But I don't think that God is happy with us just going to church for 90 minutes on a Sunday. He doesn't want just my 90 minutes on a Sunday. He wants my whole life. And Jesus invites us to become Christ followers. The first Christians weren't even called Christians. They were called followers of the way. Followers of the way. And you and I have not been invited into some special religious club. We've been invited to become followers of Jesus. Come follow me and I will make you. If you want your life to count, if you want a life of significance, if you want to do anything worthy and worthwhile in your life, learn how to become a Christ follower. Because when you're following Jesus and following what he is showing you and you're allowing that to be outworked in your day to day, it's amazing how it starts to change everything around about you. And so last week I started our Christ follower series by talking about Jesus introducing us into relationship with Father. That Jesus didn't come to bring a new religion. I always get a little annoyed when people say, oh, you're a Christian, so you're religious. I go, no, it's so much more than that. Yes, we devoutly follow the Lord, that's true. But it's so much more than being in a religious club and ticking a box. Jesus came to bring relationship with Father, that we could be reconnected. In fact, in John 14, 7, he says, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. Jesus came to show us and reveal to us the Father. And so last week, I talked about what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? How does he show us the Father? And we looked at six dimensions of relationship. Number one, salvation originated in Father. John 3.16 tells us that God so loved the world that he, that he um, uh, gave his one and only Son that who would ever believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. The Father gave us salvation. Then number two is the Father gives us a new identity. We get a whole new identity. If anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation. So we, God doesn't know me according to the old James, thank you. He knows me according to the new identity that he's given me. Number three, I have his favor. If I am now a new creation, I'm a son of God, I can know his hand of favor that's on my life. 
And as I know his favor, I can know his presence. I can be in his presence. I've decided that as a son of God, I don't want to be performance-driven. I want to be presence-driven. When you don't know who your father is, you're constantly searching for identity. You're constantly trying to prove yourself. You're insecure. You don't know who you are. You don't know who your father is. And because you're insecure, you, you, you prove yourself at work and you prove yourself to the girl and, and you prove yourself in all your relationships. You're just, and it's exhausting being performance driven. But because I have a new identity and I am now a son of God, I can know his favor is upon me, not because I deserve it, but because he chose me. And I can now be presence driven. I just want to be in the presence of God all the time. Everywhere I go, I want his presence to surround me everywhere I go. When I'm in his presence, number five is I hear his voice. God wants to speak to us. God wants to download from heaven and speak into your soul. And when he's speaking, number six, he releases his purposes. He releases his purposes in you. And so Jesus came to reveal to us the Father. Today, we're gonna be talking about not just my relationship, but we're going to talk about my Bible. Because my Bible. When I was a kid, we used to sing a song. It's the B-I-B-L-E. Yes, that's the book for me. I stand alone on the Word of God. It's the B-I-B-L-E. Bible! I'm committed to bringing back those old songs, all right? Just, you, you look, you frown at me now, but I'm going to put it on the playlist, Liz. You watch. When I was a kid, I was taught that this is the Bible. It's the Word of God. I tell you what, learning that as a child and being 39, standing here as a preacher, I've had to go on a journey with this thing to figure out what is it. But John chapter 1, verse 1, says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And Jesus is the he, and it's kind of a confusing sentence structure. I mean, my Lord, who taught this person literature? It says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. And the word was God, and he was in the beginning with God. It's talking about Jesus. Jesus is God. Jesus is the word. And, and the Word, Jesus came to show us the Word. He revealed to us in His life the Word. And so we need to figure out what to do with this Word. I reckon the Bible is the most controversial book that's ever been written. Bookstores have no idea what to do with it. I feel bad for every librarian ever. Because when they get handed the Bible, they're like, where do I put this? Do I put this in the, in the facts section? I'm not sure I believe it. Do I put it in the fiction section? Is it a history book? Do I put it in the history section? There's a lot of poetry in this book. Do I put it in the poetry section? It's a book about God. Maybe it's in the biography section, which I don't know what to do with this book. It's confusing to me. To some people, the Bible is the most amazing piece of literature that's ever been written. To others... It's just a book. To some people, 
It fills them with anger and hatred and rage because they've seen over the time that this book has been used to hurt people. To the Christ follower, it's everything. The authenticity of Scripture validates everything we believe. Everything that I believe is underpinned by the writings in this book. Joel Osteen, love him or hate him, is famous for a mantra that he gets his people to say every time he preaches. Right before he preaches, he says, he tells them, take your Bible in your hand. He says, this is my Bible. I am what it says I am. I can do what it says I can do. Today I will be taught the word of God. I will boldly confess my mind is alert. My heart is receptive. I will never be the same again. I am about to receive the incorruptible, indestructible, ever-living seed of the word of God. And I will never be the same. Never, never, never. I will never be the same. In Jesus' name, amen. So he gets his people to recite every time he preaches. I think it's kind of a cool thing to say. We're not about to do that. That's Joel's thing. That's not our thing. But I think it's a powerful thing when you say, this is my Bible. I am what it says I am. That's a bold declaration. Some of you are like, I don't know about that. One time in 2008, I was on a plane flying from Mackay to Brisbane. And I like to have time alone with God when I'm on the plane. So I put my headphones on and I had my Bible out and my journal out. And I was doing my thing, doing my study on the plane. And this lady taps me on the shoulder. So I take my headphones off and she goes, are you reading a Bible? I said, I sure am. And she goes, do you believe in the Bible? I said, I sure do. I'm a preacher. Kind of have to. (laughs) I said, have you read the Bible? She goes, yeah. I said, do you believe in the Bible? She goes, some parts. It's like, which parts? She goes, I believe in the parts that came from Jesus. It's like, what about the other parts? She goes, nah, I don't really, I don't know. I said, do you mind if I ask what you do for work? She goes, yeah, I'm the principal of the main Catholic school here in Mackay. It's like, come again? Yeah, she goes, I'm the principal of the school. She goes, this is my chaplain. She was sitting next to the chaplain. They were on their way to some school conference. I said, what about you, mate? You're the chaplain. Do you believe in the Bible? And he goes, no, not really. I was like, what's the go? And they said, well, look, we believe that some of it is of God and some of it is Jesus. But we believe that most of it's been written to manipulate people and hurt people. And so we just don't want anything to do with it. Uh, Believe it or not, I was was shocked. I was like, come on. The principal and the chaplain of the main school of our town, Christian Catholic school, don't subscribe to the Bible. As I mentioned before, many people think many different things about the Bible. And today I want to take a deeper look at the validity of Scripture. How do we know that this is truth? How do we know that we can believe in this stuff? There are some common myths. And I want to talk about some of these common myths before I bring some proper teaching. Myth number one. Wasn't the Bible written by powerful people as a ploy to manipulate? That's a common myth. Wasn't the Bible written by powerful people as a ploy to manipulate the ignorant? The reason that that is a myth is because it's not, be, it's not possible that it was written by a few people. It was actually written by over 40 different authors in three different languages 
spanning a period of time of 1,500 years. So they were really, 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 really powerful. I love babies in church. I had four, just know, I have four kids. Your baby does not bother me. (laughs) My babies bother me. Your babies are great. (laughs) There's no way that it could be written by just a few powerful people as a ploy to manipulate the ignorant when it was written by over 40 different authors in a 1,500-year period. It's just not possible. Myth number two, the Bible's just another book. It's just, eh, that's just not possible either. It's actually 66 other books. They've been compiled into one book. There are 39 books in the Old Testament and 27 books in the New Testament. The Old Testament speaks of the Old Covenant which was based on upholding the law. But the 27 books of the New Testament or the New Covenant are based on the covenant that Jesus brings us in salvation through the cross. Within this one book, there are as many as seven different genres included in this one book. That's why we are a bit schizophrenic with where we know where to put it in the library. It just has its own section if you really want to know the answer. Most, most libraries just have the Bible section because they just we're just going to give it its own category which I think is pretty fitting. Within the Bible, there are seven different genres. There is a narrative. Some of the books are written to simply tell the story of what happened. Exodus is a great example of this. Exodus tells a story, helps us to know what happened. Then there are some books that are poetry books. Uh, This would be Psalms, and some of the other sections of other books would be poetry. They come with vivid language. Uh, God is painted in, in a number of different pictures through poetry and imagery, but God isn't actually that way. Burst your bubble for a moment. God is not an old man. God is not even a man, nor is he a woman. He's, he's God. But sometimes he's painted as an old shepherd sitting on a hill with the sheep. You and I are not actually really sheep. We're actually really people. And God is not actually really a shepherd. He But this is the imagery that we derive from some of the writing of poetry books. Then there's the wisdom literature. This would be Proverbs and Job and Ecclesiastics. These books are a collection of wise sayings that are meant to shape the moral and ethical lives of the reader. So when you read Proverbs, hopefully you're being shaped with wisdom. Then there are prophecy books. Many of the books in the Bible were written by prophets as a prophetic word to their audience. There are four major prophets. There is Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. And then there are another 12 minor prophets, which would be basically Hosea through Malachi in your Bible. Those are what are known as the minor prophets. And these prophetic writings are God's word to his covenant people warning them to not stray or how to live in difficult times. From the prophets, we have the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the four Gospels that are listed in the Scriptures. They are similar to the narrative, but there's so much more. So much more than trying to tell a story. The Gospels are actually a proclamation. They're a declaration. They're telling us something significant. It's more than history. The people who wrote them were true believers relating first, the firsthand accounts of the life and the teachings of Jesus. And so when we read the genre of the gospel as a faith document, it is announcing world-changing events surrounding the person of Jesus. 
It's actually not designed just to inform you. It's designed to stir faith within you. We also have the epistles or the letters. You would have the letter to the Romans, the letter to the Corinthians, the letter to the Thessalonians, the letter to the Colossians. These are letters that are written by apostles to a desired audience. And so the letters written in the New Testament were communications to a specific group of people at a specific time. Some people have said, you know, why do you have women preachers in church? The Bible clearly says women should be silent in church. What we have to understand is we have to understand that that letter was not written to all the churches. That letter was written to Timothy, who was the pastor at the time of, I believe, the church in Ephesus, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and what would happen is in, in Ephesus, the Ephesians, Ephesus, is that they worshiped the goddess Diana. Diana was, um, was the, the mother of all gods. So you had all the gods, they believed in all the gods, but Diana was the mother of all of them. And what this did was this, this meant that women had an inflated role within society. Men and women were not equal, Women were the dominant and men were the subservient in that society. And what would happen is in church in Ephesus, the women would just start blurting out in the middle of the preaching, in the middle of the service, and there was no order in church. And so this is why Paul writes specifically to Timothy saying, hey, we want order in our service. In your specific case, the women need to remain silent in church. Now, that's not suggesting that women on the whole need to remain silent. It's just to say there needs to be order within the service. And so when you read that as a letter to that specific people, you understand, hang on a minute. That's not saying that all women should. In fact, who was Paul taught by? He was taught by Priscilla and Aquila. Pris Priscilla was a woman. Aquila, or maybe I've got that wrong, one of them was a woman. <laughs> Paul was taught by both. And so we are a church that believes in the whole Bible, but we believe that that was an epistle written to those people at that time. Now, that's not to say we throw the baby out with the bathwater. Whether you are a man or a woman, we would appreciate it if you don't jump up and down and get all preachy while I'm preachy. We only have one preacher. You can be enthusiastic. Tell me how great I am because my ego needs it. <laughs> the Apostle Paul wrote a letter to the Romans. And the overarching description there was to encourage their faith. Corinthians, on the other hand, was written to quite a loose church, a church with a number of problems. And so when you read each letter, you see that Paul is writing different things to different people, addressing different specific issues. Doesn't mean that we don't take the principle of those issues, but we have to understand what that's about. Then the last section is the apocalypse. There, there are some books that are written specifically to talk about end times. Revelation, parts of Daniel, parts of Thessalonians are revelations pertaining to the returning of Jesus and the apocalypse, end times. And so it's important that when we sit down to study the Bible, that we recognize kind of what genre are we looking at because we can misunderstand what's being written. So the myth that this is just some book is wrong. 
This is 66 books, and within each one of them is all kinds of different genres. <laughs> this is why a study Bible can be very helpful. I would encourage you, if you're, if you're engaging your Bible and you, and you don't have some of this knowledge, a study Bible is very good. You'll know it's a study Bible because this is not one. This one's a, this one's a regular Bible. But a study Bible is about that thick because it's got a whole bunch of extra information in it. Myth number three, the Bible has been so messed up through human translations, it's impossible to know the truth. That is a common conceived myth. It is true that up until the 15th century, the text of the Bible was copied by hand and sometimes scribes made mistakes, that is true. But this does not mean that the text has been compromised and we've strayed from the original concept. In fact, it's the opposite. When we compare it with other ancient texts, it's extremely accurate. We actually have 6,000 manuscripts of Greek New Testament, not to mention another 20,000 ancient translations to go with it to bring checks and balances to make sure that we don't stray from the intended message. These 6,000 Greek manuscripts reinforce the validity and the accuracy of the Bible that we have here today. There are many variations of the text, but most of those variations pertain to spelling or even word order within a sentence structure. Less than 1% of the variants amount to a meaningful change and none of these affect any essential doctrines. The checks and balances has been quite clear. So the evidence is clear that our modern English translations are reliable translations of a reliable text. By the way, when you're studying scripture, I tend to read from the New King James, but I love crossing it over with other translations to get a more accurate, holistic. Well, the Greeks have such a beautiful language. We English, English is like the worst language on the earth. And everybody who learned it as a second language said, amen. <laughs> um, English is, it's, it's, it's not descriptive. The Greeks are able to articulate. So pulling meaning out, well, we might pull one dimension of the meaning, but we lose some of that. That's why getting a good Shane Willard preach every now and again is great because he helps bring us, uh, uh, he helps expand the text so that we can understand it in a, in a greater way. But when I read scripture, I, if I, especially if I'm digging deep on something, I love to pull it out from the NIV and from the ESV, uh, which is the English standard, is it? English, and the CSV, which is something, Brad, contemporary something or something. Yep, it's good. <laughs> Myth number four. The books of the Bible were chosen at random or worse in a conspiracy to cover up actual truth. Dun, dun, dun. Let's go ahead and call this myth the Da Vinci Code myth. The fable goes something like this. During the first two centuries AD, there were hundreds of Christian documents being used by churches. Books like the Gospel of Thomas, the Acts of Peter, and even the Gospel of Judas were read alongside Matthew, Romans, Revelation, and the rest of the New Testament books. It wasn't until Emperor Constantine legalized Christianity in the fourth century that we narrowed the list down to these 27 books. 
In the Da Vinci Code, Dan Brown has one of his characters describe what happens next. More than 80 gospels were considered for the New Testament, yet only a relative few were chosen for inclusion. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were among them. When asked who decided which gospels to include, he replied, the Bible as we know it today was collected by the pagan Roman emperor, Constantine the Great. Even though those claims are a little grandiose by Brown, it's amazing how many Christians believe some portion of that. It's true that the early Christians wrote dozens, maybe hundreds of documents in the first two or 300 years. It's also true that the New Testament canon was debated until around the time of Emperor Constantine. But that is about as much as the Da Vinci Code got right. Early Christians were never considering 80 different Gospels. In fact, the four Gospels that we have today, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, were the only Gospels that Christians seriously considered for inclusion in the canon of the New Testament. This was for three big reasons. Number one, these were the ones that were written closest to Jesus within around 75 years of his death. Most of, they were all written before 100 AD. Then, number two, these books are all directly related to an apostle or a church, a significant church leader at that time. And then number three, these four were widely circulated around the churches for instruction and teaching. So it's not like there was a whole bag to choose from History actually shows us that it was Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that were the ones that were prominently circulated at the time. The Gospel of Thomas was the earliest other gospel that had been written, and it was written between 150 and 180 AD. So what does that mean? Well, Jesus died somewhere around 33 AD. Up as much as 150 years later, we get the Gospel of Thomas. The further away it gets from the time, the less accurate it would seem to be. The New Testament gospel writers were within 60 to 100 years and during the lifetime of the actual apostles that are listed in the scripture. It is also true of the other New Testament letters and books. And so while it took some time to whittle the books down to 27, it was well recognized that these 27 books were already being circulated around the early church. And there is no evidence anywhere that suggests that Constantine had any influence over which books were chosen. This is why I gave you that notebook, because I'm just providing you a whole bunch of good facts. So now that we've dispelled some of the myths surrounding Scripture, I want to look at seven key affirmations for why scripture is valid. I hope you find this interesting, because I do. I'm a bit of a dork. I know Brad's happy as a pig in mud. Ron's like, when do we get to Ephesians 3.20? Sorry, Ron, that's not in this one today. Sorry, mate. Have to learn some other ones. If you're visiting with us, that's an in-joke. I just made fun of Ron. And it was good. Number one. Scripture is actually affirmed by archaeology. Archaeologists have 
consistently discovered the names of government officials, kings, cities, and festivals mentioned throughout the Bible many times when historians didn't think such people or places even existed. For example, the Gospel of John tells us that Jesus healed the cripple at the pool of Bethesda. The text describes that the the pool had five porticos or walkways that led to the pool. Well, early scholars were like, "This this this is a farce. That's not real. There is no pool of Bethesda in Jerusalem. Until 1888, they discovered the pool of Bethesda. And how many porticos and walkways did it have? Five. The Bible has a tremendous account of, uh, amount of historical detail. As a result, not everything mentioned in it has been found by archaeology. However, not one Archaeological find has conflicted with our biblical record. Not one. There's not one discrepancy. They have desperately tried to prove that the flood and Noah and the ark were a farce. And and there's actually more and more evidence that's coming out suggesting, oh, wait a minute, that might be so true. Contrast this with the Book of Mormon for just a moment. News reporter Lee Strobel makes these comments about Mormonism. Archaeology has repeatedly failed to substantiate its claims about events that supposedly occurred a long time ago in the Americas, as outlined by the Book of of Mormon. If you don't know, um, Mormonism originated in the early Americas. It's actually not that old. And archaeology has failed to substantiate many of those issues. Archaeologists have never located many of the cities, persons, names, or places mentioned in the Book of Mormon. America's not that old. Many of the ancient locations mentioned by Luke in the Book of Acts in the New Testament have been identified through archaeology. In all, Luke names 32 countries, 54 cities, and nine islands. All have been proven to exist without error. It's pretty detailed, Luke, especially when you consider that over time, countries change names, cities aren't called that anymore, and people, well, the records aren't all that accurate sometimes, but the fact that they're all there, it's pretty cool. Archaeology has also refuted many ill-founded errors about Scripture. Here's a couple of, here's an example. Some colleges in America today still assert that Moses could not have written the Pentateuch, that is, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the first five books of the Old Testament. We, have been, we, we believe and teach that they were written by Moses. And the reason that they say that there's no way that Moses could have ever written them is because they believe that well, writing hadn't been invented then. All right, you got a fair point there. So what happens is you've got these early Christians and Jews claiming that Moses wrote the Pentateuch and scholars are saying, well, writing hasn't even been invented. How is that even possible? Until 1870. In 1870, archaeologists discovered a book written on tablets that is called the Black Steel. This 
table or wedge, this, this, this tablet had wedge-shaped characters on it that contained the detailed laws of Hammurabi. Hammurabi was a pagan religion at the time. Not only are they dating this, this, this stone before Moses, but they're actually dating it before Abraham. Some of you are like, I don't care, mate. Could you just get on to the next point? No, because the next point is even more interesting than this. <laughs> I'm mean, like, wow, I did get my afternoon nap. Um, it's all right, I can't see you. I told him to turn the lights up nice and bright, so I can't see what you're doing. Archaeology consistently confirms the historical accuracy of the Bible. Here's another one. This one's good. You'll, this is more interesting. Number two. Scripture is regularly reaffirmed by Jesus. Jesus himself taught from Scripture all the time. In Matthew 4, 4, he answered and said, It is written that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, Scripture. In Luke 4, Jesus quotes the prophet Isaiah 61, saying, The Spirit of the Lord God has come upon me. And Matthew 15, 3, Jesus affirms the Old Testament as the commands of God. And so whilst this doesn't validate the New Testament, it does validate that Christ himself subscribed to the full Old Testament, the 39 books of the Old Covenant. Now, let me say this. If Jesus subscribes to the 39 books of the Old Covenant, I think you should too. Some people say, oh yeah, you can pretty much rip those 39 books out. We really only need New Testaments. Not so. Because Jesus regularly reaffirms these teachings and we ought to know them and be familiar with them and apply them in light of the new covenant as well. Number three, we've got to ask the question, when were these things written? Have you ever heard the game Chinese Whispers? If I tell Jesse something and he tells every row, by the time we get over here to Marissa, that is not going to sound like that. Play that game all the time when I was a kid in school. You have to apply that same principle to the writings and the teachings of Jesus. The further you get away with it, away from it, you can understand that things would have changed shape. Stories would be changed. And so one of the keys to whether or not the New Testament was, these books were going to be considered for the New Testament, was whether or not it had been written within roughly 100 years of Christ's life. Because within that period of time, you have people that were still alive when those stories were actually happening. You're not having second and third hand stories. That's where we're going with this. Number four, we gotta look at who wrote it. The 27 books of the New Testament were all directly written by confirmed apostles or people closely associated with those apostles. That would be like Luke. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Well, Matthew, Mark, and John were all apostles. But who's Luke? Luke was a doctor that was closely associated with the apostle Paul. If you didn't know this, Luke and Acts are actually one book. They were not meant to be two different books. Luke-Acts is written in conjunction with the book of Acts. So what I want you to do is open your Bibles and rip out John. So you can read it as one congruent story. No, please don't rip out John. That's a good one. 
But why did they put John in between Luke and Acts? Uh, that would be chronological order in which it was written. Matthew was written first, Mark was written next, Luke was written, then John. They wanted to group the Gospels together, so that's how Luke and Acts got split, just because they put John as a Gospel right up in there. But actually, Luke and Acts should be read together, and they were written by Luke, who was a doctor, who was closely associated with Paul. Number five, how widely circulated were these letters? Why didn't we include all 80 or whatever of these other writings, hundreds of other writings? Because prominent churches, such as the church of the Ephesians, the church at Corinth, the church of the Jews in Rome, the churches, oh, sorry, the church of, 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 of Jerusalem, excuse me, they, they, they held to these, these teachings and they would read these teachings regularly on Sundays in worship. And they would teach from them. And so these 27 books all have been confirmed to be circulated amongst all those various churches. Here's the last one, number six. I said seven, but it's not. Scripture is affirmed by continuity. Each book had to be confirmed to validate one another and validate Old Testament. So there was a lot of checks and balances that went in to get to make sure that they confirmed and validated one another. Additionally, it had to validate the idea that Jesus was not some man, but was in fact the Messiah. And so the Bible, whilst it was written by 40 different authors over 1,500 years, has, 100, has 66 books. It speaks one central message. There's continuity to the whole thing, that there is a loving creator who loved us so much that he sacrificed Jesus for us to forgive us our sins and redeem us and restore relationship with one us, with us. And that is one of the key components of each of those books of the Bible. They reaffirm and confirm one another in the congruency of the message. So there's a couple of things I wanna land with. What do we believe about the Bible at our church? Number one, we believe that it is the word of God that has been inspired by the Holy Spirit, but penned and written through men. Yes, it was penned by men, but we believe in divine inspiration that as these men were writing, they were writing the word of God. Now, some people would say, well, why do they sound different? You know, like, why, why does God have, you know, why does God sound that way over here and sound that way over there? It's because he was written through the personalities of each person. It's kind of like how we all speak English, but we speak with different accents. Some of us speak with an American accent. Some of us speak with a North Queensland Oka accent. You bogan. <laughs> Some of us speak with a Pommy accent. We speak the same word, but it has a different accent on it. And that's how scripture is written. It's written with the same word, but it has a different accent. 2 Timothy 3 tells us that all scripture is given for insp by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So we believe that the Bible is here for reproof, for teaching, for instruction. And at our church, I don't preach pop culture, I preach the Bible. And my job is to help relate scripture to everyday life. Number two, we believe that the Bible is inerrant and infallible. Excuse me? 
Yes, we believe that the Bible is without error and without fail. We believe that the Bible is God's word written by God through the Holy Spirit out of the pen of men. But we believe that it is without error and without fail. This means that there is nothing missing from Scripture, nor are there discrepancies or errors within it. To that end, we believe that number three, it is authoritative. Because we believe that Scripture is the Word of God written by God through the Holy Spirit, it is supreme authority. And as a result, we ground all of our teaching and decision-making in Scripture. That is very important. And I've got Bible scholars, people who've studied more than me, who surround me. And every now and again, I say, hey, look, if you hear me see, teaching something that is not congruent with the overall arching theme of Scripture, talk to me about it. Because I am fallible, but the Word of God is not. Okay? We need to constantly realign ourselves back into alignment with God's Word. So why is this important? Why is it important? Why are you giving us this history lesson about a book? Number one, it teaches me about God. When I read the Word, I get to know who God is. I learn about His character. I learn about His love and His strengths, His attributes. Additionally, not do I get to just learn about God, but it teaches me how to live. This Bible becomes my guideline. So when it says, be a husband of one wife, I say, all right, it's just me. There's no other wives. I know, I really wanted to until I read that scripture. As if, could you imagine the complexities of having more than one? I just think, how could you? One is a lot. Number three, it reveals to me greater purpose. When I read scripture, I learn that this life is not about me. I learn that this life is about me dying to myself for the well-being and the benefit of others. I want to close by applying this. If you've got your journals, write this down. If you're looking for a pen, there's a pen in your little pouch. A pen in the pouch. If you're just getting started with reading the Bible, I would start with one of the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's a great place to start. It's where you'll learn a lot about the stories of who Christ is. You'll learn a lot by reading Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. If you've done that, I'd say move on to some of the Psalms or even the letters, the epistles. Once you've done that, challenge yourself to read the whole Bible. Read the whole thing. Making sure that you understand the genre with which each letter was written to. One of the things that we teach our Bible college students is when we read the Bible, we look to apply it to three different audiences. When I read scripture, I first and foremost think about how did it apply to them, the audience of the time. So, what is Paul trying to say to these Roman people? Okay. Number two, I look at it, how does it apply to us, the body? How is this scripture important to us? And then the last thing I look to do is personalize it. How does this apply to me? Okay, Paul wrote it to the Romans, but we know that it's applicable to us, the corporate body, but this was also written to me as the believer. So what is Paul trying to say to me here? What am I gonna get out of it? And that is why I gave you a journal. 
Well, actually, that's not true. That is why my wife gave you a journal. We were driving in the car this morning and she said, you're doing all this and not giving everyone a journal? That's not happening. So she went and bought you a journal. Thank you, Paula. When I read the Bible, I actually read one or two chapters. I, my reading comprehension is ever developing. But when I read, I just pick a chapter and I read the chapter and I understand it in context and then I pick my favorite verse. Oh yeah, I like that one. And I journal about it. And so I want you to write this in your notebooks. There's an acrostic. S-O-A-P. Soap. Which has nothing to do with this, but that's what it spells. The S is where I write out the whole scripture. The O is where I write out my observations about that scripture. Okay, what is that scripture trying to say? What, what might they be saying to the church at Corinth? What is going on in the greater, bigger picture here? A is where I look to apply it to my personal life. Okay, this is what it means to me. Oh, I better change that. I better adjust that. I better start doing that. And the last one is P, which stands for my prayer. And I always write out a prayer. Father, I thank you that you're committed to helping me grow in this area. Or maybe I'm just overwhelmed with the love of God. So John 3:16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that who would ever believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. So I write out that whole scripture. My observation, God loved me so much that he sent Jesus just for me. Not that I would perish through my sin, but, but that I could know what it means to go to heaven and have eternal reward. Application. God, I thank you that you didn't just die for everyone, but you died for me personally. And then a prayer. Father, I'm so grateful for my salvation. Thank you. Thank you that you chose me. Thank you, God, that, and I just pray and I write out my prayer. And I look to personalize my scripture to my. I believe that God wants to speak to us. One of the best ways that He can speak to you is in the Bible. Problem is, I think we have too many Christians that believe all of this, but don't understand the Word of God. And then here's what happens. Your friend comes and says, how could you be a Christian and believe that gay marriage is bad? How could you be a Christian and believe that homosexuals are going to hell? How could, you, how could you even believe in creation? I mean, science has proven evolution. And what happens is the world comes against us and we just know what we've been taught on a Sunday in this meeting, but we don't actually have any biblical basis for why we believe and stand on these truths. And what happens is we become ignorant we lack the ability to provide biblical sound evidence and doctrine for why we believe what we believe. That's why we do Unlimited Leadership Academy. Because I just believe that the church doesn't need any more dumb Christians. 
I was a dumb Christian for a long time. I used to believe in Jesus. I used to love to get into His presence. I loved Holy Spirit encounter, knock me down on the ground, but I never read my Bible. We have an ignorant church. We have a church that, that wants to feel it, but hasn't bothered diving into the Word of God. And I actually think we need to change that. And so I wanna challenge you, just pick a chapter. Do it three times a week. If you read three chapters a week and picked three verses and journaled SOAP just three times a week, it would start to change your life. It would really start to change your life. Here's the problem. If you come on Sundays and just listen to me teach the Word all the time, well then, then I'm like the mama bird and you're like the baby bird. And I eat the food and then you open your mouths and I go. <laughs> I ate the word and now I'm, I'm giving you my word, but it's come from in here. You can go and get it yourself. My grandfather said to me one time, he said, James, I can give you gold nuggets or I can take you to the gold mine and teach you how to get it for yourself. We live too much on lazy gold nuggets that get thrown out by preachers. We need to go to the gold mine with Father ourselves and learn how to mine it out ourselves. Come on, are we committed church? I've gone over, but I really hope that this has empowered you. We're gonna send these notes out. Some of you are like, gee, you went so fast. How did I, I didn't get it all. We're gonna send these notes out this week in your study this week. If if you're not on the email list, take a moment, fill out one of those communication cards. We'd love to get you on the email list so you can get the devotion notes. But we need to be know, we need to know how to be armed in the Word of God. Thanks for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this message. We pray that you and your family are richly blessed in the love and grace of Jesus. If you're ever in the area, we'd love to have you join us for Sunday worship. 